You're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Between now and the coming elections, Americans are going to hear a lot about health care, universal health care, importing Canadian drugs, cuts in Medicaid, 50 million uninsured, complex problems without obvious answers. Here's a campaign idea. Why not start with a health care problem that we can fix? better care for all Americans at the end of their lives. Why not ask the candidates about Margot? These are some of the questions Bill Colby poses in his latest op-ed piece. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Susan Dolan, your host, and with me today is attorney Bill Colby. Bill Colby is the lawyer who represented the family of Nancy Cruzan in the first right-to-die case heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. He worked on legislation which eventually became federal law, the Patient Self-Determination Act. A senior fellow with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization in Washington, D.C., he is the author of The Long Goodbye, The Deaths of Nancy Cruzan, and Unplugged, Reclaiming Our Right to Die in America. Bill Colby, welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. Susan, good to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Who's Margot? Uh, Margot, well, you, you were just uh, taking that from an op-ed piece that was published in the last week. She's been written about in the medical literature. She was also featured in the President's Council report on caregiving, which came out in the fall of 2005, looking at the hard questions of how quickly our country is aging and how we are going to care for this aging population. And Margot was one of the case studies they used, uh, an elderly Alzheimer's patient, unaware of the world around her, happy in the home she was living in, uh, as described, painting the same pastel paintings each day, reading from the same book each day, unable to remember in the afternoon what she had done in the morning, unable to create any new memories. And the question posed by the President's Council and in the medical literature was, as a caring society and medical profession, what duties do we owe to Margot? And the twist in the case was that when she learned of her diagnosis of Alzheimer's, she filled out a living will saying that if the time came that she would have an opportunistic infection, she would not want that aggressively treated. She now has reached the point where she has such an infection, and the question is posed, what duties do we owe to the Margot who is here with us now? A fascinating question. In the op-ed piece, you asked the question, why would a savvy politician wade into such a seemingly sensitive debate over end-of-life care? And obviously, there are lots of hard questions in any society at any time, and certainly in our society now, there are, there are many issues that we're facing from the war to health care to the economy. As posed in the op-ed, the point that I try to make is the question of our caregiving in our society is not going away. If you just look, everybody's writing about the demographics now with uh, my, my and your generation, the baby boomers coming uh, one study I saw from the Census Bureau said that in the year 2030, just 23 short years from now, that 44 of the 50 states will have the demographic mix that only Florida has now. I don't know if you've recently been, but it looks a lot different than the rest of the country. And in a very short time, the entire country is going to look like Florida. The medical technology is 
increasing almost weekly if you read the New York Times. It's, it's just amazing the advancements that are coming in medicine. So you have the people going up, the technology going up, and the private, federal, and state money to pay for the care that all those people will want is not keeping pace. So it's an issue we're going to be talking about all the time in the years ahead. And I think the reason a politician would talk about it now is that of all our complicated issues, this is one that has some solutions. In your op-ed piece, you discuss the disconnect. What is this? That's my term, the, the idea of a disconnect. Survey after survey finds that roughly the same percentages, that 80 to 90 percent of us when surveyed say that when our dying time comes, we hope to be at home, free from pain, surrounded by loved ones, and not tethered to machines. And the reality is almost directly the opposite. 80% of our dying happens in institutions far too often uh, with pain, far too often tied to various kinds of medical technology that in hindsight our families say we would not want. And if one important solution to that disconnect is that if we talk with one another about what our views and values are and what medical treatment we want at the end of life, then that seems to me an area that a politician would look to. If, if we can address this issue by simply talking with one another about a topic we don't easily talk about, why would we not? You also reference a study in the February 2007 Journal of Managed Care discussing the power of talk. What is this? It, uh, it was a study done in a large managed care population in California. It looks like from the study, although it's not completely clear, like it's a Blue Cross Blue Shield population in California. Very, very interesting study. They put in place a computer program where they, and I, it, I don't know all of the variables that they use to identify the people, but whether it be a series of different organs involved in illness, or certain medications plus certain illnesses or certain number of visits to the hospital, but they identified patients who appeared to be seriously ill. And then at that point, they had a special uh, team of nurses both look through the medical records of these people, make a phone call to the patient, and then make a home visit to talk about uh, their medical condition, medicines they were taking, uh, potential for palliative care, whether or not they had an advanced directive, a power of attorney, whether they talked uh, or a living will, whether they talked with their family about the questions of what care they wanted. And the results from the study were that through this outreach, and, and again, it's more complicated than this, but to me that a, a key part of that is simply by sending out a nurse to talk with uh, in, in the home with this patient, they found uh, increased hospice usage, in the population, lower in-hospital death rate, and the satisfaction scores from the family members were, uh, were with the care that the family, uh, the patient received, were extremely high. And a secondary issue, but one certainly that we, as I say, will be talking about in society, is that the cost of the care reported in the article was uh, significantly less for these patients who the outreach uh, happened with. You write that if you had advanced dementia and were diagnosed with pneumonia, while most family members might say yes to penicillin, you would want your family to say no. Why? Well, I don't, I don't know if most family members would say yes 
to penicillin. I, I suppose if they've talked about it, they may or may not. But from my own point of view, my views, my values, my understanding of medicine, my relationship with, with the God I, I believe in, to me, the whole purpose of medical treatment is to serve as a bridge to recovery so that I can live my life the way I define it. Much of medicine is unbelievably remarkable. When, when you think about it, in, in just a, a hundred short years, from 1900 to the year 2000, we've given each of us almost an extra adult lifetime. We've, we've doubled our life expectancy from 43 years to now almost 80 years. There, there's an economist by the name of Julian Simon who calls that the single greatest achievement of mankind. But we will still, at some point or another, all come to our end, and medical science might delay that process, but it's not going to stop it. And so I think we should talk about when we do reach that end, what we use medical treatment for and how we use it. And, and for me, uh, dementia runs in my family. My grandmother had Alzheimer's. If I reach that point where I'm sliding downhill, where I, I won't recognize my family, where I'm in Margot's shoes, then I see medical treatment as serving no purpose, not because I don't love life or affirm life or I'm a life-affirming person, but because it, makes, it medically makes no sense. It's not serving a, it's not serving a purpose for, for me. You mentioned the bridge to recovery. What is this? Well, the, the idea that if there's a treatment that can help me live the life on the terms that I've identified and with the quality that uh, I think we should live our lives, then I think the medical treatment makes sense. But uh, taking the example of dementia, uh, knowing my family, interacting with my family is a critical component to living life to me. If the medical treatment can serve that purpose, then spectacular. I want that. But if it's simply keeping me in a demented state for a longer period of time because we can, without any discussion about whether or not we should, then to me that medical treatment's not indicated, and, and my wife, who's named as my written power of attorney for health care, will be an advocate to have the talk saying, does this really make medical sense at this point? What is our goal of this treatment? Why are we using this treatment? And I, I think that's a discussion we're really just beginning to have in many ways in our society, although it's rising before us like a great wave. What's the best advice you can offer the medical professionals listening today? <laughs> I guess a little bit scary if we're asking a lawyer to give medical (laughs) advice to medical professionals. And I I do that with some hesitance, but I have been talking and thinking about these issues, both from the legal side and the social side for uh, many years. But I I think that good decision-making in the area of end of life is not about the law. Uh, Much of our social discussion has come in the context of legal disputes, uh, the three large ones over 30 years, being the first, Karen Quinlan, the one that went to the U.S. Supreme Court, my case, Nancy Cruzan, and then the last few years, obviously, in Florida, the Terry Shiloh case. So, so the discussion was forced through the courts, but it's not really a, about the law. It, it's about basic communication, one person to another, and, and very, very difficult communication, not, not just for lay people, certainly, but for doctors thinking about our own mortality and and, uh, facing our mortality because doctors want to help, they want to cure, they want to heal, often they can, but in the end, if if that's the goal, it's going to be a 100% failure rate because dying will come to 
to all of us. So I guess that we enter this discussion humbly and that we uh, try to have it with our patients upstream from illness when everyone's relatively healthy because the, the talk at that point, I think, is a gift. And then the sharing of stories is a great way to get the discussion started. And whether it be the collective story that we all have at this point with uh, the Terry Shilo case fresh in our, in our mind's eye or, or another, uh, I, I'm not sure that matters. But I, I find that people who share stories are, are able to get that discussion started in, in a useful way. Bill Colby, thank you for joining us today to discuss your latest op-ed piece titled The Candidates and Margot. I'm Susan Dolan. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening. 